This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 14. How you view Christ might seem like a trivial matter. Who cares what you think of him anyway? But if you're a believer, if you've placed your trust in Christ for your eternal salvation, then it matters a great deal. And whether you like it or not, your Christology, your understanding of who Christ is, his nature, and his character, is often on display for the whole world to see. Just encounter trouble, a storm of life, and you'll find out right away what you think of Christ and his power over circumstances, his ability to keep his promises, and his testimony as to who he is in the Bible. And that's what we'll discover today as we listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So find your places in Matthew 14. We're going to start from verse 22 and we'll read all the way to verse 36. This is the scene. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, commend me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and the men of that place recognized him. They sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched him were cured. There is a lot of action in this scene here going on. And therefore, immediately, I want to show you how to grow in Christ through adversity. Because that is what we see in this scene. We have the disciples of Jesus Christ who were going to be sent into the world not very long after that. And they needed to have a clear understanding of who Christ was. And therefore, Jesus is teaching them how to grow in Him through adversity. So first, let's, let me point out to you, according to verses 22 through 27, that anxiety tends to confuse our view of Christ. Jesus finally got to enjoy solitude with the Father, something He's been looking forward to since the previous scene. You will remember that in verse 13 of chapter 14. And you remember how that scene ended. The crowd wanted him to be the king. They wanted to crown him right there after the miraculous feeding, according to John 6, verses 14 through 15, because they realized, okay, this is the prophet that we have been waiting for. This is the Messiah. Let's crown him king right here and get rid of Rome, get rid of the Herodian dynasty. 
But God has a different plan, of course. Crucifixion was going to come prior to coronation. And Jesus decided to spend time with the Father in fellowship to prepare for that day, most likely, and also to pray for the disciples. Because while Christ prayed on the mountain, a crisis was brewing in the Sea of Galilee. And remember, that's a lake. They knew that lake very well. So it was familiar territory for them. But their stability changed dramatically from one second to the next when forces outside of their control battered their reality and quite literally rocked their boat to the extent that they now all of a sudden had a blurred vision of Jesus Christ. But church, the human experience abounds with proverbial contrary winds, doesn't it? Whether you are a seasoned believer or a brand new one or even an unbeliever, stress will shake your metaphorical boat from time to time. You will encounter circumstances that escape your control completely. For example, you will, if you haven't already, encounter the waves of financial burden. Or how about the contrary winds of illness that will rise up against you from time to time just because you live in a fallen world? Other times, you will probably encounter the storms of betrayal. And I wish, church, that I could promise that believers were exempt from all of these things. But I'd be lying because the truth is, because we live in a fallen world, we are subject to tragedy and anxiety and all of these things. But what I can promise on the authority of the Word of God is this. Jesus controls the uncontrollable. He can tame adverse circumstances with a word. Or in this case, not even with a word. Just by being there, we just need to be alert to what he wants to accomplish in our crisis. And here's how Jesus illustrates this truth in this scene here. He strolled on the water sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's the fourth watch according to Roman calendar. So he had been praying all night there well into the morning and he decided to show up above the circumstances in the crisis of the disciples there. And he proved that he had the power to suspend the law of gravity because the law of gravity momentarily for that time did not apply to him. He was walking on the water that, by the way, he created. He created the law of gravity. He can bend it. And that's the point. So this is a miracle. A miracle is when God suspends the natural laws that he created in order to make a point. And this is what God is doing in this particular scene. He wants to show to his disciples who he is. They were weary by the crisis around them. They were exhausted from attempting to keep the boat afloat, frustrated by their inability, and now terrified by what they witnessed. Therefore, they mistook Jesus for a ghost. You see what's going on here, church, is that their fatigued and frightened mind played tricks on them collectively, obscuring their ability to discern fact from fiction. Now, all of us, from time to time, have experienced something similar. We have responded unreasonably to hardship, just like them, because adversity tends to drain our emotional energy. And because of that, we sometimes make premature conclusions, which have nothing to do with reality. Some of you are dealing with some crisis right now, dealing with dysfunctionality in your family, for example. And you tend to make premature conclusions about so-and-so that obscures reality. Well, you're dealing with job insecurity or relationship wounds and numerous other storms. And you are tempted to come up with, uh, with an explanation that is not real. You may not see clearly now, but I promise you, Christ is there. 
How do I know that? Because the Bible says in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And also in Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So God is there, church. Christ is there. You may not be able to see him clearly now because of the emotional anxiety you're facing because of your circumstance, but trust the word of God that he is there. I encourage you to measure your perception of reality, church, against the truth of God's word. See, no matter what you think, if you think something different than what the Bible says, you need to cite what the Bible says. So no matter what everybody else thinks, God determines reality. You are who he says you are. He is what he says he is, even if you don't see him clearly just yet. Jesus comforted his horrified followers here with a word. And that word would have echoed God's self-disclosure to Moses. You remember that in Exodus 3 verse 13? When God told Moses, I am who I am. And here's Christ telling them, do not fear. It is I. So Christ clearly affirms his nature to the disciples. I'm not a ghost, he says. I am God. And he prefaces this Biblical Christology, this uh, accurate description of his identity with those sweet words. Be of good cheer. Take courage. I am God. I am here. So, my fellow believer, if you are terrified by your current circumstance, raging completely out of control, take courage. Your adversity may be overwhelming, but he is God. Jesus maintains complete authority over the forces that you cannot control. He arranges them, in fact, in order to mature you in your faith. He arranges the circumstances of your life in order to cause you sometimes to experience stress so that you can mature in the faith just like he did with the disciples here. Again, how do I know that? I'm glad you asked because Romans 8 verse 28 says this, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. So church, I ask you, who caused the storm? God caused the storm so that he can walk into their storm and calm their hearts. Jesus deliberately placed them in that calamity to reveal an aspect of his nature and identity that they could not have grasped by lecture. You understand that? He could have lectured them on Christology, but they would not have understood unless they went through this practical training here. Some of them recognized his voice. Well, at least one of them needed a little more convincing, which leads me to the next point here of our training on how to grow in Christ through hardship. We already understood that anxiety tends to confuse our view of Christ, but secondly, I want you to see verses 28 through 33 that humility tends to correct our view of Christ. And we say this because Mark and John also recorded Christ's walk on water, but Matthew is the only one who describes Peter's involvement. And once again, the one whose name means rock demonstrated his strong personality. Again, we we see Peter's personality all over the Bible. Peter was the only one who said, Lord, if it is you, then command me to come to you. Now, the other disciples were probably shaking in terror when Peter was the first one to speak up. But the point is, he wanted out of the crisis. Well, and who wouldn't? right? Nothing he did solved the problem, and his fellow apostles were equally clueless on how to control the situation. Again, 
They knew their territory. They knew what they were doing. They were professional. Some of them, not all of them, were professional fishermen. And now they are humbled by this situation that is completely out of their control. And Peter is the one who manifests his personality by saying, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. And likewise, church, I want you to see that losing control of your health, for example, or your ability to pay bills can cause distress. Because it's familiar territory for you. Something that you are used to doing very well. Something you think you got under control. And all of a sudden you lose the control of the minimal things in life. I don't want you to miss the blessing of humility here. Because every time that happens, it gives you an opportunity to trust God more. So when God places you in a crisis, it's a great opportunity for you to learn. First of all, I don't have the control that I thought I had. Second, He always maintains the control. And I want you to see here that Peter's proposal here for Christ contains the first-class condition particle in Greek, which we translate into if. But the sentence in verse 28 could also be rendered like this. Lord, since it is you, command me to come to you. And Jesus didn't rebuke him for the apparent presumption. Instead, he used the opportunity to teach the disciples and future readers of this account, you and me, a practical lesson. The disciples needed a well-defined Christology. They needed to know clearly who Jesus is before they would be totally equipped to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. Because remember, these are the guys who launched the Christian movement after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. How could they preach Jesus accurately if they couldn't even differentiate him from a ghost? How could they tell others, well, that's the Christ, that is the Messiah, that is the God-man, the Son of God, if they didn't even understand who He was. And that is the point here that Jesus wants to teach them. That's the lesson. You need to know exactly who I am before you go tell people how to be saved. Otherwise, you may confuse people. In church, the same lesson applies to you and me. We need an unmistakable understanding of His nature and character. If we want to represent him faithfully in the world. Otherwise, we will fumble with our Christology. And we will tell people something that Jesus is not. So we need a clear, unmistakable understanding of the nature and character of Christ. If we are going to represent him to a world that doesn't know him. Otherwise, we are the blind leading the blind. So let me share with you three habits to cultivate. So that you can grow in Christ through adversity or through hardship. Three habits. They're all from the text. Number one, according to verses 28 through 29, obey him promptly. Let me show you a pattern from scripture, okay? In Matthew 11 verse 28, Jesus invites the weary and heavy laden to come to him. He calls children to come to him because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, according to Mark 10 verse 14. The bread of life promises relief to starving souls who will come to him. John 6 verse 35. Furthermore, he summons the thirsty to come drink the water of life. John 7 verse 37. And Jesus invites those who no longer want to walk in darkness to come to him. John 8 verse 12. So the pattern is this church. Jesus calls people to come to him. And the pattern remains this day, friend. He wants you to come to Him for forgiveness, for purity, for holiness, for relief, for affirmation, for wisdom, for comfort, for restoration, for security, and for correction when necessary. So you come to Him. Just like He's inviting His frightened apostle to come in your adversity. 
Why would you go anywhere else? Why would you turn to anything or anyone else? Since he is the only one who has words of eternal life. According to John 6 verse 68. So we come to him and we obey him promptly. Every time he says, come to me. Prompt obedience. Because if you have to stop to consider whether or not you're going to obey God when he says, come, you're already in the realm of disobedience. You see, if he says to you, come now, why would you come tomorrow? If he says to you, I want you to do this today, why would you wait? So we obey him immediately and promptly. According to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. So when God says, come, come serve me, we go without hesitation, filled with fear if necessary. But understanding that he knows what he's doing, whatever God calls you to do will cause fear and anxiety. Keep this in mind. Whatever God calls you to do must include fear and initial anxiety because our flesh craves self-reliance, self-preservation, and comfort. But faith says, trust God, obey him immediately. He will accomplish what he desires in and through us regardless of our fear. We need to cultivate a second habit. We also need to seek him desperately. That's verse 30. Seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Circle that prayer. Lord, save me. The disciple, Peter, experienced terror when he removed his eyes from Jesus. He is walking on water, he's obeying Christ, and his, his eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ, but as soon as he removed his eyes from the majestic Savior, according to verse 30, seeing the wind. In other words, as soon as he shifted his attention to his adversity, he began to sink. But again, this is the most important prayer anyone can ever say. Why, church? Because, first of all, he recognized who Jesus is. He addressed him by his title, Lord. So he recognizes the lordship of Christ. And he acknowledges what Christ can do. And that's the verb on this prayer here, save. He recognizes that Jesus is mighty to save. And he personalized the prayer by saying, me, Lord, save me. I am in trouble. See, church, he didn't say, throw me a rope. He didn't say, teach me how to get back on the boat or teach me to swim. He said, save me. Lord, I am under the circumstances, but you are above them. So he uttered the prayer of the desperate. And the prayer of the desperate, church, is usually simple, theologically correct, and personally appealing. Lord, save me. I need your rescuing. In church, we need to learn that prayer over and over again. Not that you need to be saved from your sins over and over again, because if you've been saved, you're already saved forever. But we need constant rescuing from bad situations, rescuing from trouble, rescuing from adversity. And that's the prayer we must cultivate. Lord, please save me. And I've said this before many times when you pray, Lord, please remove me from the situation. Or, Lord, please get me out of this trouble. Or, Lord, please change my wife. <laughs> or change my husband. Lord, make them pay for what they've done. Most of the time, God will leave this circumstance completely unchanged, but change your heart about the situation. He'll give you a fresh perspective, a fresh look upon the situation, and wisdom to deal with the situation. Why? Because He wants His disciples, including you and me, to find security in Him alone. And that's the habit we need to cultivate. 
Let me tell you about the third one. Not only are we to obey him promptly and also seek him desperately, we worship him truthfully. Verses 31 through 33. Jesus answered Peter's prayer immediately. Again, the Bible says immediately, gently rebuked him for his little faith. Now, if you're wondering why Jesus would rebuke him there, wonder no more because the answer is in the book of Mark. Mark 6, verse 52. They, meaning the disciples, had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. They just witnessed the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and yet their hearts were hardened. For that reason, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In other words, what else do you need in order to understand that I am able to do this? I am able to feed people and I am able to save people. Evidently, they gained insight after this scene here. Because for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples addressed Jesus by the theologically appropriate title, Son of God. They understood finally that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, according to Colossians 1, verse 15. They also understood that He, Christ, is the radiance of His glory, the glory of the Father, and the exact representation of His nature. In other words, when they are looking at Jesus Christ, they are not looking at a ghost, but they are looking at God incarnate, the creator of the universe, making His tent among people in order to die on a cross to save undeserving sinners. And noticed that they worshipped him without instruments and without melody. They could have sung a song here, but Matthew used the Greek verb for worship that means to fall down on one's knees. They simply uttered biblical truth back to him, and that was their worship. Several lessons emerge from this church that I want us to understand here. First, only a softened heart can truly worship Christ. A hard heart will blur your vision of Christ. Therefore, like the disciples here, they thought they saw a ghost because their heart was hardened, according to Mark 6. And because their heart was hardened, they could not worship Christ properly because they didn't understand His identity. A heart of stone usually worships self in your own preferences, your own tastes, your own life, your own dreams. That's what hard hearts tend to do. So only a softened heart can truly worship Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are commanded to sing to God, of course. There are several of those commands in the Bible. But we don't really need music to worship Him. True worship is primarily a response to the attributes of God. Therefore, He will receive your adoration, church, in song or recital format. Doesn't matter which one you choose, as long as your heart is right before Him. Thirdly, I want you to see here, Adversity provides opportunities for hard hearts to be softened. And this is what we see here. These guys had a hard heart. The adversity caused their hearts to be softened by Christ. And consider yourself exceedingly blessed if today you face the most trials so far. Because Christ wants to take your worship to the next level. So you can worship Him truly if you can come to the same conclusion that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. The question is, have you? Have you come to that conclusion yourself that Jesus is truly the Son of God? If you come to that conclusion, my friend, you are ready to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And because He is God's Son, He has a legitimate claim on your life. In church, we respond to Him promptly, humbly, and worshipfully. Let's close with this one. Anxiety tends to confuse our view with Christ. Humility tends to correct our view of Him. 
But finally, according to verses 34 through 36, adversity tends to confirm our view of Christ. In this scene, the dark clouds dissipated, the morning dawn, and the Sea of Galilee flattened, telling us that after the storm, blue skies usually come. Storms don't last forever. The apostolic team here arrived at their destination safe and sound with Jesus in the boat. And there's a myriad of applications that you can draw from this. And Jesus is in the boat of my life. And we've heard all of them. So I will spare you. But I want you to see that the disciples continued their ministry of leading people to Christ after this. Only this time they had their Christology right. You see, they started this scene with a faulty view of Christ because their hearts were hardened. They ended the scene with a correct and accurate understanding of Jesus Christ. The difference? God tested their faith and approved their faith. They are now more mature than they were pre-storm, pre-crisis, pre-adversity. Your emotional hurricane will pass. Soon you will see the blue skies that follow the storms, so take courage. Jesus is in the middle of the storm, strolling above the troubled waters. All you need to do is cry out to Him. He's just waiting. We need to obey Him promptly. We need to seek Him desperately. And we need to worship Him truthfully. He will answer your cry. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people, just like you, to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it, or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.